Welcome to Renegade Inc. The Retrospective, in a year that has been quite quiet and straightforward for everyone. In this programme, we look back and bring together the best of some of our guests so you can relive 2020 in glorious Technicolor. First up is friend of the show, Steve Keen. Steve sees COVID-19 as a bigger economic shock than the 2008 crisis. He also thinks that the pandemic has unveiled the fatal flaws in what was already a fragile economic system. Because it happened to start in China, uh, that's where most of the, a large part of the supply chain originates. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a, a demand and credit crisis as the 2008 crisis was, it's a supply crisis as well. And whole production system can break down. There are some things we don't need to have produced. We can survive without extra cars, washing machines, mm -hmm iPads, iPads, that we can live without. We can't live without the food, and we can't live without the health. Medical supplies. Unfortunately, many of those medical supplies originate in China as well. The type of capitalism we have, which we're, with the pressures being to deregulate, diversify supply chains, globalise and so on, works in what William Bommel once called the cowboy economy. Well, there's enormous, vast open spaces. You can expand into them. You can dump stuff because it doesn't matter. The environment will cope. That's cowboy capitalism. And is that the idea behind Go West, young man? Yeah, exactly. That's where Belmont got the, took the idea from. What he then said is we're also in our own spaceship economy. We are so confined by the system we're in that we don't have any room to move. Everything we do gets dumped back into the vessel we're in. And that this is one of the most tragic manifestations of that. The event itself wasn't predictable. That this event would happen was predictable. Right. There's a great book written about it about 25 or 30 years ago by the New York Times health correspondent called The Coming Plague. And it isn't the flu virus that happens to do it. That's what she thought would be the case. But it was inevitable at some point we'd get a combination of a highly contagious disease, which was very deadly at the same time. And in some ways, this, this virus actually hits the sweet spot of both. So we're told that capitalism is the most efficient and effective economic system available. But when the so-called stewards of the system hollow it out by prioritising profit over people, when a pandemic does hit, it's no surprise that those who can least afford it end up paying the price. You have a level of displacement now that is very, very stark. The loss of jobs, uh, you have businesses shut down. New York City, where I lived until we had to leave, uh, is now a ghost city. Nothing happens, nothing moves. No one knows, for example, since today is, uh, when we're taping this, when we're doing this, is toward the end of the month, everybody's rent is due for the month of uh, April. No one knows whether they should pay it or not. The same is true with mortgages. The same is true with every deal that's on the table which contracts for a payment. I mean, the system isn't working. And that's not because we have a virus. It's because as a system, despite knowing that at least for the last century, we've had a dozen viral pandemics, and we know that they are dangerous in terms of the spread among people, and that therefore you have to plan and organize how to manage that. None of it was done. None of it was planned for. And the reason is simple. In a private profit system, no producer of a test kit or a mask or a ventilator or anything else has any incentive to produce them if they're not profitable. 
to stockpile them if they're not profitable. It turns out that capitalism's profit system is a very inefficient way to cope with fundamental threats to public health. But here's the punchline. No matter what our politicians do, the people are slowly learning that a system that cannot protect them from these kinds of events, like a system that works to produce the crashes of 2000 and 2008 and 9, is a system whose time has come and now gone. The 1% don't ever let a crisis go to waste, and COVID-19 has been no different. Where public health systems have been deliberately eroded and deregulated, a door opens for Big Pharma, and not needing a second invitation, they jump in to do deals of a lifetime. This will sound like a uh, cold calculus, and it is, but uh, there are parts of the pharmaceutical industry that are salivating at the pandemic, not because they want people to die or because they uh, engineered the pandemic in a secret lab, but because this novel virus gives them a possible once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for enormous profits. Governments around the world are, are panicked. People are in fear. They're desperate. That's the time you get great deals. The people are paying billions of dollars through their governments for vaccines and treatments. Pharmaceutical companies are all rushing to try to get it through. The ones that cross the finish line first know that this could be a, a game changer for them in terms of their business models. But one thing the pharmaceutical companies know is good PR. It's hard to imagine I say that because they don't get much of it. Whoever develops this vaccine, I predict now uh, to be proven wrong, they will give away 100, 200, $300 million of it to the third world, to Africa, to places where it's too poor. And that will make them look as though they're doing something philanthropic when they're making billions from the Western world. As Brexit looms, the NHS comes into sharp focus for American healthcare and insurance companies. They want in so to bleed the service dry by introducing a pay-to-play system, lumbering UK citizens with massive administrative and medical costs. Insurance is about making profit. And the way you make profit is through the denial of care or introducing barriers to accessing your insurance policy. So having a high out-of-pocket expenses, for example. Whereas a public health system is there to deliver the best health outcome for the patients without the additional bureaucracy of an insurance-based system. So if you compare the pre-privatised NHS to the American system, well, our administrative costs were less than 5%. In America, the administrative costs are in excess of 30%. So it makes absolutely no sense from an economic point of view to replicate a hugely costly and expensive system like the Americans. And the other problem with the insurance-based system is perverse incentives for doctors to deny the care to their patients. And that will fundamentally break the relationship between the doctor and the patient. Replicating a US-based healthcare system would be a disaster especially as the NHS is an amazing public health investment story. It was the Alibaba founder, Jack Ma, who highlighted that the reason America can't look after her own people is that there's been too much war and not enough public investment. I think since essentially the Reagan era, like the United States hasn't invested in its people. So I think Americans understand white people better, so I'll refer to Europe. But in Europe, they invested in healthcare, in public services. These were all considered part of being a wealthy country. Um, and America never made that investment. 
they said, oh, if we give money to rich people, they'll make cool stuff. And that's true. You do get like a huge range of consumer goods in America. You can get as many toothbrushes as you want. But if you're in West Virginia, your teeth are rotting out of your skull because you don't have dental care. They haven't invested in themselves, in their people. And it's also led to a society where, as you can see in COVID-19, where, you know, just wearing a face mask, it's, it's an act of caring for someone else. Where that is seen as like somehow, somehow unmanly or un-American, not by many Americans. I think many Americans are, are doing that but by enough of them that it causes a huge problem. So yes, you need to invest in people. Like what do, the thing is America doesn't even win wars. It's the only empire in history, I think, that has made a, you know, a career out of losing wars. I think Americans are also unaware of how hurtful their wars are to people. Uh, there's this Brown Costs of War project, which says that you know, over a million people have been killed in one way through America's terror wars. Over 37 million people have been displaced. And I would just invite Americans to consider that these are families who also love their children and who also love, their, love each other. These are also people who liked being in their homes. So it's not just like, oh, you're like Raytheon and people made out with some money. It's like, no, you destroyed many lives. Many people have been hurt. And there's this sort of like arrogance about Americans that, hey, we're the good guys. And you're not. Like, you're the baddies. This is what America needs to realize. And now it's happening to you. Now, like these same troops that were going to other countries are now on your streets in Portland, in Wisconsin. And it doesn't feel so good, but it never felt good for the rest of the world. One of the byproducts of so much military adventurism overseas is an oversupply of troops arriving back in the country and looking for work. Many of them end up in local police forces. What could possibly go wrong? The rule of law has become increasingly complicated. Uh, police officers today, aren't just hunting down bank robbers or burglars or you know, people who assault. They, they, they police domestic violence situations, extraordinarily complicated situations. They, they police um, mental health issues. Uh, they, they police you know, economic disparity issues. Uh, these are social workers more than they are police officers. And to police effectively, to be part of your community, you have to have the knowledge base uh, to know what you're up against and how best to respond. This means that we should be hiring um, very mature people, uh, people with at least a four-year degree, preferably an advanced degree in some sort of not just um, you know, criminal justice, but also sociology, uh, social working. Um, and, and we should pay them very well because we're demanding that they be of a certain standard. They should receive money. Instead, we hire cops at, at, at borderline poverty payment. Uh, we, we don't demand a college education. We often just say, hey, um, you know, high school's good enough. GED is good enough. And, oh, yes, you get an extra click if you come in from the military. You get a veteran's um, you know, a, a bonus. But the military doesn't provide any of what I just said. The military teaches you how to close with and destroy the enemy through firepower and maneuver, which is the last thing you want a cop to be doing. The uh, killing of George Floyd was a trigger, not just in terms of a response to the systematic uh, brutality coming from the police forces, but the structural contradictions that are creating the conditions and the in the country in which uh, African-Americans are dying at, to the tune of hundreds a day as a consequence of COVID-19, unnecessarily dying because uh, our communities have been the victims of 
a neoliberal uh, regime that has closed down hospitals and allowed for industrial uh, plants to be sited in our communities, resulting in all of the underlying conditions that have made our people vulnerable uh, to COVID-19. So there are structural uh, this violence uh, along, along with the violence from the police that get culminated to a point where people uh, decided that enough was enough. And with the uh, African-Americans going to the, to the streets, uh, they were joined by uh, white allies and brown people and uh, LGBTQ people and everybody who are frustrated at what is happening uh, in this country. Well, America is exceptional, uh, but not in any good way. Uh, exceptionally violent around the world with military bases all over the world, interventions, invasions, coups uh, against other nations, violent against its own people, exceptionally violent, more people in prison than any other country. Uh, the police killing three people on average every day, a thousand people killed by the police. George Floyd is just one of a thousand people who will be killed by the police this year. So the exceptionalism is not uh, anything positive. And uh, why is it uh, that uh, you have such a military presence uh, globally, uh, but you can't actually manage affairs internally? Well, I think the two are connected. Uh, uh, the fact that the U.S. has this empire is an indication that it's not democratic at home either. You can't have injustice uh, abroad but have justice at home. The two are linked. Uh, when you have a, a country that sees itself as having the right to do whatever it wants to anyone, then that ethos is repeated here. Welcome back to Renegade Inc. One of the most confusing and barbaric events in 2020 has been the Julian Assange trial. Surely journalists and the public can foresee the ramifications of not standing up for freedom of the press. So why have we heard so little about this from the corporate mainstream media? Well, I think it's, uh, the reason is twofold. It's, it's because um, the media are not doing their job, and, and this is not just uh, corporate news media, but also when it comes to independent media, uh, they just can't be bothered to cover this case. Uh, I think because they're just not interested in anything that's got to do with national security journalism and exposing war crimes and covering foreign policy. And of course, the corporate news media, they're, they're just an arm of the national security state. So they're, they're not going to cover somebody who goes against their narrative and, and the establishment lines that they parrot. And, and the other reason is that there's been an enormous smear campaign against Julian Assange for the past decade. Um, they've been trying to character assassinate him, paint him as a cyber criminal, as a Russian intelligence asset. So you have people that end up uh, shying away from his case and not wanting to defend what's happening. When in fact, it's not just about Assange, it's about press freedoms worldwide. You know, if the US can reach across the Atlantic and just kidnap journalists, what's next? If Julian Assange is extradited, he will most surely be convicted. And it's the end of journalistic freedoms as we know it. It's, it's, the, it's setting a new precedent that the UK is going to give up journalists that the US wants and, and let them uh, just pluck them out of central London and put them away in a federal uh, supermax prison in the US for two centuries. And it's, it's sending a message that anyone who calls out, who exposes government wrongdoing and, and crimes is going to be punished. 
I would say that this is a selective prosecution and a political persecution. The United States is going after Julian Assange specifically because of the information that he revealed through WikiLeaks. They want to scare other journalists and whistleblowers and encourage them not to be publishing information that is embarrassing to the United States government. So this is certainly a retaliation for his good journalism. In fact, it came out during the uh, extradition hearings that WikiLeaks was not the first to publish the leaks that included the names of informants. It was, in fact, Cryptome who published this first. However, it is WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, essentially, that is being prosecuted for this. And I do think that it is, the, again, the United States retaliating against a journalist and publisher. And I can tell you, Ross, if you look at the conditions that he will face in a U.S. prison system, it is absolutely atrocious. It violates basic human rights. It would be a complete atrocity if the U.K. government were to grant this extradition. I cannot stress that enough. The conditions he would face are not suitable for his mental health or his physical health. A media blackout is a prerequisite to exporting so-called democracy globally at the point of a gun. But that playbook is beginning to look dated, especially as we see that imperialism 2.0 has little or no regard for the people it's meant to be liberating. If we look at kind of how the historical colonialism has devolved, you know, in the day, uh, if you look at the British Empire, for example, the colonial powers at least felt some stewardship over their colonies, right? They right. would plunder the colonies, they would repress people in the colonies, but they felt some obligation to build some infrastructure, you know, to do something for people. And they prided themselves on this, right? I think they overly prided themselves right. on it. but. You know, they felt some obligation. And then, of course, uh, you know, certainly after World War II, the British colonies break up, uh, the British Empire uh, falls apart, and, you know, the U.S. starts to really become the dominant colonial power. And what it decides is, look, we don't have to be a steward over these places. That, that costs money. And it's, you know, it, it takes effort. <laughs> so what we're going to do is just support strong men to rule over these countries in our interest. So we'll get all the benefit, but we don't really have to do much for these folks, right? But then as time went on, they decided, well, the strong men are unreliable. And what, what they decided in general is we're not going to be a steward. We're not going to support strong men like Mobutu or Saddam Hussein, who was a U.S. Uh, uh, asset for a long time. What we're going to do is we're just going to create chaos. We're going to destroy the state. We're going to create stateless countries in which we can just then go in and plunder at will, right? We don't have to negotiate. We don't have to pay taxes. We don't have to pay royalties. We can just go in and take what we want because there's no state, even a compliant state to deal with. And that is the new model. That's what people have to understand. Chaos is the end game. After Donald Trump ordered the killing of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani at the beginning of this year, he very quickly backed down from further military action, which would have caused unprecedented chaos in the Middle East. But why did he retreat? For decades, I think the United States um, essentially had a, a grudge against Iran. 
because of the fact that we lost our uh, client regime, the Shah's regime, uh, in 1979, and really longed to have it back, but couldn't do that. And that was a that was the beginning of I think this grudge. But then after the Cold War ended, we have a new stage, which I've uh, discussed in my book, Manufactured Crisis, that uh, where the U.S. national security state really needed Iran as a an adversary uh, in order to partially at least try to make up for the loss of the Soviet Union as its primary adversary and primary excuse for the Cold right. War, uh, for, for that Cold War level of spending on the military and, and intelligence. So that was a second phase. Um, but then, you know, I think we go into, quickly go into a third phase where the role of Israel as an influence on U.S. policy toward Iran became really very central. Uh, it began really under Bill Clinton, uh, and it has continued under Bush and less so under Obama, but then under Trump very much so. I think the, the real uh, principal cause of this apparent desire for war with Iran is the pressure from the constant badgering from the Netanyahu government in Israel and its ability to uh, essentially leverage a strong influence on U.S. policy through particularly uh, Secretary of State, the Secretary of State that we now have, Pompeo. Um, and we've seen over the last year in particular this uh, influence by Pompeo on the policy has been extremely uh, strong, and it has uh, resulted in being that that is the policy influence has resulted in uh, the, the president Trump himself being maneuvered into a position where he almost went to war twice. Yes, um, and the result was that we didn't go to war. And I would argue that there are two reasons for this. One, Trump himself does not want to have any part of a war with Iran. But secondly, I can tell you uh, very uh, confidently that the U.S. Pentagon, despite its warlike qualities, does not want to go to war with Iran. It has right. not wanted to go to war with Iran at all for many years. And the reason is that the United States military particularly the U.S. Navy, has too much to lose in a war with Iran and nothing to gain. So with the American election jamboree out of the way and a new president-elect, many who voted for him are now hopeful that America gets back to normal. What Biden has promised us, the American people, what he has promised us during his campaign is a return to normal. But normal is the problems that we know all too well of neoliberalism. Normal is a bloated Pentagon budget. Normal are endless wars. Normal is corporate control of so much of the American politics. Normal is an inf a massive infusion, as we see during every election, of money in politics. So normal is uh, not something to look forward to. So what will the new normal look like? Will it look like the old one, but with Teslas? Or is it now the case that we simply can no longer afford 
the status quo. You know, the kind of scale of economic stimulus, financial stimulus that are going in to maintain the status quo, the pre-2019 status quo, is phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's by a long way larger than the 2008 uh, financial collapse, which indicates the economy is going to be somewhat different on the other side of this. But I would also argue that it was going to have to be different anyway. I mean, we had an eco economic model that came in after the Second World War, which for many of us created prosperity, particularly in the sort of Western world and everything else, and sort of um, affordances that are, um, you know, generations behind us could never have even imagined. I don't want to be too mean about that, but the cost of that economy to, the, to, the, to our environment, to the place that we live on in terms of growing inequality and so forth, that wasn't built into the purchase price. And so our extractive economy, which was, you know, we take things out of the earth, we, we, we do something, we process them, we put them in, say, a phone or something, we use that phone for two years and throw it away. That extractive economy ultimately would have to change. And actually, I think this is, in, in some sense, accelerated, catalyzed this thinking about what does the new economy look like? Because we simply can't have an economy which damages the environment, creates gross inequality, and also ultimately does lead or creates the environment or the conditions for a pandemic to thrive. At the end of a year like 2020, it's easy to feel hopeless, but this misses the point. The real heroes of the year weren't the presidents, politicians, prime ministers, and corporate CEOs. The real heroes have been the workers, teachers, doctors, nurses, in short, all those people who create real value. They have kept our society and our economies moving. And what belies this is a new understanding that we are collectively way more powerful than we think. I think I want us to understand that we have power, that, these, that the private finance sector, Wall Street, is dependent on the public institutions of the federal, these are public servants. They're heavily reliant on public institutions, not just at times of crisis, but all the time. Um, the thing that the banks want more than anything in the world is our debt. And so, therefore, we can say, yes, okay, but these are the terms on conditions. If you want this stuff, these are the terms. So I want us to feel that power. Now, I think that's really hard for ordinary people to feel, but they can do it through their trade unions. And the way I, I think about it is in this way, and this became so clear during the pandemic, is that we think of ourselves as just individuals with very little power, and it's all this big stuff going on beyond us. And then a pandemic hits, right? And the big, powerful guys are paralyzed. Who is, the, who is running the economy? Who makes the economy work? Well, it turns out to be Mr. Jeff Bezos's truck drivers, the deliverers who are delivering his parcels. It turns out to be the people, the truck drivers moving our food around. It turns out to be the shelf stackers in supermarkets. It turns out to be health workers. These people are making the economy. So that's it for the Renegade retrospective this year. In our next episode, we have a special guest who's been right at the heart of government calling the shots throughout this woefully mismanaged pandemic. Don't miss it. But from all the team here, thank you for your support and kind words over the year. We all really appreciate it. Happy Christmas, and until next week, stay curious. <laughs>